Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Uh, as I um, am doing another program from the Pacific Coast here in Santa Barbara. And when I say from the Pacific Coast, I mean literally. Uh, I'm sitting here looking at the marine layer rolling in. You can hear the surf rolling. I've got people walking past who are doing their exercises. They're walking, getting getting some uh, movement going, <clears throat> which is real important for us these days to keep the movement going. And our movement is uh, New Paradigms for a New World. And we come your way with that movement every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at those times. And we podcast. Yes, indeed. Like everybody else, but I call it a broadcast podcast because we are on the radio. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um uh, we are on podcasts with SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and a whole bunch of others that folks are uh, basically um, reposting our interviews. And thank you so much for doing that. We also encourage you to go to our guest's website, which we will be giving you shortly so that you can continue your evolutionary process. And if you'd like to support the work that we are doing, you like the folks that we have on and the ideas that are presented, then we encourage you, if you can, to support us financially. We do have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And the biggest thing of all, <clears throat> beyond all of that, and again, pardon me for clearing my throat, uh, is today, this is 2020, the year of perfect vision, inner vision. We want you to spend time going within to get that inspiration, that insight, the instruction that you need, and find that peaceful, calm space where you can just relax. We don't need to be stressing right now. It's the last thing in the world that we need to be doing. Uh, it is not good for us. I want you to know it is absolutely not good for us. Uh, and so I encourage you to uh, take the time and just be for a few minutes, okay? Take that time and just be. Well, today we're going to be with our guest who is uh, going to share with us her insights. Uh, and we are very grateful for that fact. We have with us, and as you all know, I really work hard to make sure I pronounce our guest names correctly. That's their name. You should take the time, show the respect to them that you would expect them to show to you. Lisa Boucher, she's the author of Raising the Bottom. We're gonna find out what that's all about. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Happy to be here today. This is a interesting title, Raising the Bottom. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that title came about. Well, it's around the concept of alcohol, alcoholism. Um, I think we've got a lot of stigma when you say that word or anybody that wants to talk about drinking too much. There's a lot of pushback sometimes. And I think most people still think that they can't possibly have a problem, nor do they want to talk about alcohol or alcoholism until their life is completely decimated. And then usually that's when people say, oh, wow, there's a problem. And often even then there's a lot of pushback. So the title came from I want people to understand that we can quit drinking when we are, you know, their life is on like a bell curve, picture a bell curve. So before you're sliding down to the end of that curve, we can stop drinking, get sober, reassess our lives, however you want to look at it at any point on that curve. And for me, I rose my bottom when I quit drinking, when I had people in my life still saying, people close to me, like my husband, saying, you are not an alcoholic. Now, my husband likes to drink, and I'm still married to him, so I could see why he was not happy about me quitting drinking, because I was his favorite drinking buddy at the time. Mm -hmm. And we're going back. I've been sober now 30 years, 31 years. So, you know, I witnessed as a child my mother hitting a very low bottom, lots of drama, some 
it was just a very chaotic upbringing. And so when I noticed that my drinking started to progress, I decided to address my issue and hence raising the bottom because I didn't lose anything. I was young in my 20s when I quit drinking. Um, nothing really bad had happened. I didn't go to jail. I never had a DUI. I'd gotten fired from a few waitress, you know, server jobs, who cares? Um, I'd been in college for a decade, so that was kind of pointing towards something was amiss. But overall, you know, I think we can get away with a lot of behavior in our 20s, and we just chalk it up as, well, they're young. But I just knew that my drinking was starting to progress. And I did have some knowledge about the disease of alcoholism. And I just thought, you know, it's not going to end well. I can drink another 10, 20 years probably. And all I'm really going to do is hurt myself, ruin my health, and have a slew of dysfunction behind me. So I decided to stop. You know, there's the discussion these days about culture huge uh, conversations. Some people say they're losing their culture because of other people. Uh, uh, other people don't, they don't know what their culture is because they've had their DNA checked and they're from all over the planet. I, I myself, uh, when I was a child uh, going to school and I was told about my heritage by my parents, I said, well, I'm Heinz 57. Well, then I had my DNA checked about a year or two ago and I found out I was Heinz 57 because I'm from five of the seven continents. Oh, wow. Uh, so I, I am definitely a, a global or world citizen. Uh, as uh, as uh, Arthur Koenig, uh, uh, one of our guests uh, on this program has uh, talked about. And um, I thought living in Phoenix in Arizona, you know, you're surrounded uh, by um, Indian reservations. Uh, even here in California, we uh, here on the Central Coast, we are. Uh, I live in Santa Barbara, and it is an area that is uh, used to be uh, um, occupied by the Chumash Indians, and they actually referred to this city, uh, this area that Santa Barbara sits on. It was pronounced uh, Suktun, uh, but that doesn't translate into Santa Barbara. I don't know what it translates into, but that's the Chumash word for this area. But when I was living in Phoenix and surrounded by Navajo and Hopi and Yavapai and, uh, and so on and so on, I didn't want to interfere. I, I wanted to learn, but I, I felt like if I did, I was interfering with that culture. I was sticking my nose in where it didn't belong. And now I find out it belonged, so to speak. When you are talking about culture here you're talking about a culture that has existed probably since fermented beverages were created uh, that people don't think of as a culture the drinking culture and in your book raise the bottom which i find interesting because what that says to me is okay raise the bottom which means turn whether it's the bottle or the glass or whatever receptacle you're using, turn it upside down and empty it of that drink. That, shall we say, culture? I find that metaphor very, very, uh, very apropos in terms of what we're talking about here. Well, yeah, I mean, we do have, when I wrote Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in this drinking culture, you know, mm -hmm. this in a drinking culture. That is absolutely what we have. We've always, I mean, I am not against, and I'm going to put this out here for your listeners. I'm not against alcohol. I am against alcohol for people like me who cannot drink it and not ruin their lives. And mm -hmm. I didn't have to ruin my life. So that's really the premise of my book. But we have, there's been a huge shift in the culture of drinking. So let me just give you a few examples, okay? I recently mm -hmm. saw on social media, there was, um, you know, the clothes, the, the wine memes. Now they have like, you know, this, we're all in the pandemic. And the mask, is, there's now a mask that says, I'll remove this, but only for wine. Mm 
<laughs> and stuff yeah. like that. So the message to drink, you know, there was a shirt with like cut out shoulders and it was all about day drinking. And, you know, I think we have to get honest, Richard. When I was day drinking, that was because I was, my drinking problem was escalating. We have normalized alcoholism and I'm extremely against that. There are certain mm -hmm. things that we cannot justify, but we're justifying it in our culture, such as parents taking their kids to, you know, the microbreweries that are all over the country oh, and yeah. expecting them to sit in strollers while they sit there for three hours and drink. Now, at what world is that okay? It's really not. Who's driving the babies home? Why yeah. does your child, your infant, your two-year-old, your one-year-old have to be subjected to your change of personality now that you're drinking because that's what happens i mean i don't you all you have to do is sit in a bar sober one night and just watch how people deteriorate over time as they continue to drink mm -hmm. they get sloppy they get loud some get silly some get mean i mean it explains why there's a lot of bar fights and whatnot so all of these mood changes you're impinging on your small children and I just don't think it's right. As a child of an alcoholic, you know, nobody ever asked me or my siblings, how did we feel how, about the drama that was going on? And I think that's still the case. I think there's a lot of really selfish parenting going on there. And no one is stopping to say, you know, how is this, how is this behavior impacting our children? Why do you we know? have adults that are walking through the park with red solo cups pushing the baby carriage? Yeah. Like, why is that okay? Yeah. You know, I'm a fan of country music and um, uh, we only have one station here in Santa Barbara in the county. <clears throat> and um, I've been listening to a lot of the songs, some of the songs I like, and some of the songs are distressing, not only from the standpoint of the whole drinking thing, uh, but also from the, the literally the, the womanizing, it's like it, th that's still in even the modern country music. Um, I mean, there's a matter of fact, I was just listening a little while ago before this interview and the song came up and the song is called one margarita. Uh, and the chorus line is along the lines of one margarita, two margarita, three margarita shot. And again, it's just encouraging this. There's another one that I was listening to a day or so ago uh, about uh, it all starts with beer. And basically it's telling the story of these two kids who end up uh, getting loaded and uh, end up uh, creating a baby. And now they got a carriage and they got this. And that. it's like the whole scenario unravels as far as the life they had hoped for or wanted and the life that they got. So there's the, there's sort of that, opposite sides trying to say, look, this is what can happen, so to speak, you know, if you don't watch what you're doing. And you're absolutely right. It's fascinating to me to, uh, to see our society go this way. I'm not a big drinker. I don't like to get wasted because I don't like to lose that control. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with uh, being OCD or something along those lines, but, but um, I do know people who they will down one or sometimes two bottles of wine in a night. Uh, and they may be at home. Okay. They might be at home, which is, that's okay. But they're still downing one or two bottles of wine at night. They don't drink during the day, you know, and so on and so forth. Doesn't seem to interfere with their work. Um, when this is such a part of our culture, uh, whether you're talking country music, um, the country lifestyle, shall we say, cowboys. Um, I want to, I want to be kind here and I don't want to be disrespectful to folks. Um, but it just seems like the college scene, the same thing. I mean, look who they're advertising to. Um, how do, we, how do we begin the process of making those choices, those mindful choices in this drinking culture? Where do we start? And I know it has to start with me, like Gandhi would say, you know, be the change you want to see. So from your perspective, 
Where does it start? How? I should say, how does it start? Well, Gandhi was a wise man, and it starts very <laughs> much like you just said, that I think that people have a lot of fear, so they don't push back against things that they're not comfortable with because they're so worried about not being liked or being rejected by their friend group. And I always tell people, if you can't stand up and question things to your friend group without being ostracized, then you need a new friend group. And that's pretty much what I had to do. I had to blaze a trail of my own. And I'll just say from my experience where I was not comfortable, I raised twin boys. Um, so I was sober, a sober mom. And there was a lot of drinking with the other moms. And I know when my, the boys were like 10 years old, one of my sons said to me, mom, how come you're not like the other moms? And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you don't get drunk like them. And I'm like, well, I don't drink. So, you know, children do notice. And we have to just start questioning things. When you've got people drinking heavily in the middle of the day with small kids, why isn't there an adult in the group who says, hey, guys, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why don't we put the alcohol away and, you know, drink later tonight when the kids are in bed or else get a babysitter? or whatever. So nobody's pushing back. There's just like this anything goes free for all mentality. And when you look at the harms that are done, I mean, on college campuses, there's a lot of devastating, life-changing things that can happen when someone is so inebriated that they lose control. They don't know what's going on. And this is whether you're male or female. So it's extremely dangerous from that perspective. Um, we don't, you know, we have to keep in our, in the forefront of our mind that the alcohol lobbies are enormous and they spend billions of dollars in the USA alone to convince us to drink. And they are especially targeting young women because women are now better educated. They're making more money. And one of the women in my book was just like you described, she's a surgeon and she was going to work every day doing her surgeries, but she came home and drank two bottles of wine every night. And although she was functioning, her children were extremely unhappy and her daughter, Lucy, I did ask her to write a letter, like, how do you feel? And I put in my book a whole chapter of what your kids say about you and your drinking, because I wanted children to give parents. And like I said, these are women that, you know, they're doctors and nurses and teachers and moms. These are not people who are skid row people. They're people who are functioning, but yeah. their children were highly disturbed with the with the drinking. And let me just make one more point. When we're drinking, because that's how my life looked. I went to work and I came home and I really actually was not a home drinker because I was young and I liked to go to the bars and the clubs. So I was out and that was my life. But there was a lot of things I wasn't doing. I mean, I really didn't find my writing gift until I got sober. I didn't finish nursing school until I got sober. I didn't finish an English degree until I got sober. Because drinking and going to bars and recovering from drinking usurped all of my time when I wasn't working. So we're, I was making a choice to do really nothing constructive but drink and go to work. So we have choices. That's what this program's all about, giving people choices and knowledge of those choices to help make their dreams come true. And it's difficult to make different choices when your brain is, how can I put this, sloshing around in alcohol. <laughs> uh, you're I'm sorry? Hijacked. Hijacked. Okay. Hijacked yeah. by alcohol. Hijacked Very good. Very... Yeah. And, and so it doesn't matter how many choices people present you uh, until, I mean, uh, what, <clears throat> what was the catalyst? What was the, the moment, the bottom uh, that you hit when you finally realized I can't keep doing this to myself, my kids, my husband, 
my career and so on and so forth. I, I, what was that moment when you finally reached as, uh, as Robert, uh, uh, as uh, uh, Robert Bly in Iron John says, when you reached what's called your catabasis or your bottom, the bottom of the well? My bottom was really high. Um, I, like I said, I got sober before I had my children. So there was none of that drama. Uh, my husband was, you know, there's something not right with you, Lisa. I don't know what it is, but you need to get your act together. I knew it was the drinking. So really my bottom was, here's what happened. I noticed um, within, I, I don't know, I think it was spirit, universe, whatever you want to call it, God talking to me. I knew a little bit about the disease because by now when I'm starting to slide downhill, my mother has got seven years sober after a 25 year disaster. So I'm watching her morph into this incredible woman, right? And she's gorgeous and she's sober and she's now living her life again, riding horses and traveling and just having a big old time. So I remember going across at, I was at, at working at a job in advertising and marketing. I have my own office and I had a, my own home bar. That's always a red flag when you have a home bar. And I went over to that bar and I'm pulling on the door and it's locked. And I'm this jolt of terror goes through me. And I look at my watch, like, why are they closed? And I realize it's only 10 a.m. And that was like a slap in the face for me because I had justified that it was okay to drink at noon at lunch, having a drink. And of course, my a drink at noon was escalating to three or four. But that was a slap in the face that it was only 10 a.m. and I was starting to crave. So my bottom was realizing I, had, I was having cravings. Like I quit before I was really physically addictive because that's another hard hurdle to jump over. Um, and I just got honest with, you know, there was another, and this all happened like within a week. And I remember saying, if I ever shake, then I'll know I have a problem. And there was one morning I had just the slightest tremor and that scared me. And then there was another time when I was riding around on this little motorcycle after being fired from a job with a Coors Light in each pocket. And I'm going through this beer drive through that was down at the end of our street where we lived at the time. And I'm buying a single can at a time, right? And finally, the guy at the beer drive through says, lady, why don't you just buy a 12 pack? <laughs> and I was so insulted. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I would never drink that much. So, you know, he gives me my single can. I go home, I walk in the door and I see it. I see the trash can in the kitchen literally overflowing with these beer cans. And that was my second slap in the face. And this all happened within a week. And I just knew, I mean, my, the little voice in my head had been talking to me for the past couple of years. You know, when you're sitting at a bar and you're going to your, you're thinking to yourself, I wonder if I'm drinking too much. That's always a red flag that yes, absolutely you are. Mm -hmm. So that had been going on for about two years prior to these little incidents that I just described. And I just knew, I just knew that that was why I was in college for 10 years. That was why I kept going from one server job to marketing job to this, to that. I was a hairdresser. I was, you know, all of these things that were just bouncing around like crazy. And I just knew because the alcohol was the only constant really in my life behind the scenes and so i just knew it was time and again not to put a humorous twist on it but i mean well hey you learned a lot of things that you could fall back on hairdresser and so forth That's right. uh, you, you know and so you know you you kind of uh, expanded your repertoire of possible careers that you could go into uh but the problem there is that may be true. However, you were doing that at the expense of your life, your health, uh, and your career that you had, you know, you wanted to be a nurse and so forth. We're talking today with Lisa Boucher, and she has written a book called Raising the Bottom. And it's basically about making mindful choices during, uh, in a drinking culture. Um, as I said, I'm not a big drinker, and what I say for myself, I never put on other people. 
you know, I, and, and um, uh, I don't like to lose control in that regard. I think there's only, I do remember one instance and I think I was 20 or 21. And of course it was over a girl. Uh, I went to this one restaurant and I ordered a pitcher of beer and I drank it down and I got on my bicycle because that's how I was getting around. And I, I rode the, I don't know if it was five or six miles to my apartment and I made it, <laughs> you know, um, that was probably the only time that I really, really did not have full control of my faculties. What did this experience for you what did this do for you on a soul level? Where were you and where has it taken you? Ah, interesting question. So I think, you know, I was raised Catholic, um, went to church with an Italian Catholic family. Mm -hmm. And we're trucking off to church come hell or high water. Nobody's really getting much out of it but we're going by God and the craziness that was going on in our home. I'm, you know, from Sunday to Sunday with my mom out of control, drunk and the drama. And some of it was tragic and some of it was tragically funny. I mean, you know, when she's cooking dinner without taking anything out of the package and the oven is billowing all this black smoke because the chicken's still in the box or the package, yeah. you know, I mean, just crazy stuff. But you know, I think most people in addiction, alcoholism, overeaters, relationship addicts, sex addicts, I mean, you name it, there's a vice to fill the hole in the soul. And so I, when I got sober, I chose the 12-step route because I saw that work so well for my mother. And it really did bring me to a very different level of, I want to say, spirituality. You know, religion mm -hmm. is man-made. We're all spiritual beings. And I think we all can connect with a spirit in the universe or whatever that means to you. So I found a very, I mean, I am a Christian and I circled back to um, a Christian God. But I also know a lot of people who were atheists who found they went from atheist to believing in something more agnostic. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a path that we all have to figure out. And mine was a very circuitous path because I started going the metaphysical route in early sobriety and doing crystals and, you know, chakras and all this stuff. And, and like I said, I've come back to a very Christian God, but my whole perception and that relationship with the God of my understanding is very, very different than it was ever as just saying I'm Catholic. So I think we all have to find our path, but it was, it was filling that hole in the soul. And I, I've talked to so many people and they say they never felt like they fit in. These are some common denominators of people in addiction. They never felt like they fit in. They never felt like they were good enough. Um, they always felt like they never measured up their parents. A lot of people, you know, were seeking that approval from their parents or mm. they suffered with issues because they were abandoned by a parent. And so their self-esteem, you know, that is a very hard place to come back from when you in your mind tell yourself, if my parents didn't think I was lovable, I am not lovable. So there's a lot of emotional pain that people carry around and they end up turning to substances or things. And so we have to heal these wounds and the steps gave me a way to do that because I did have a lot of childhood wounds. I don't think my mother was ever able to properly nurture us. My father became a rageaholic because the environment was so out of control and he was desperately trying to control it and became very verbally abusive, sometimes physically abusive. So, you know, you grow up and I said, you know, the predominant emotion that I could have related to as a child was fear. And when I picked up a beer at 12 years old and all of a sudden I'm not scared anymore, 
hey, this is pretty good. And this is how a lot of young kids end up getting addicted very early in life because they are mm. traumatized from whatever the heck is going on at home. They pick up a substance. It changes the way they feel. It, it, it takes away some of those negative emotions that they don't have coping skills to deal with. And the addiction is on. So we have to, if we want to do anything about addiction, Richard, I think we could start with doing something about alleviating childhood trauma. Well, and it is said that everybody has an addiction. It just, uh, it, it's a, sort of a gradient uh, from uh, not so healthy to extremely unhealthy. Uh, I myself uh, am working on uh, my uh, own personal addiction. I think it's appropriate to put it in this context, considering that I was just diagnosed recently uh, with type 2 diabetes. Uh, my addiction is sugar. But I have begun in the initial four weeks uh, since my diagnosis um, to find things that are healthy, that help my blood sugar, and that have very low sugar, and yet they taste very good. And so that's, that's a process I'm going through uh, in terms of saying that, because I, I would say, I have a horrible sweet tooth. Well, I have to start changing those words, and that leads me into my next area. Um, words have power. So when you start talking about mindfulness in terms of making mindful choices, um, where do you stand? What's your perspective when it comes to words that we say to ourselves as well as to other people? Well, I think the biggest hurdle with words is we don't tell ourselves the truth. So that self-honesty is critical because we can tell ourselves all kinds of lies, like I was alluding to earlier, the negative self-talk or the lies of the denial, like relating to your diabetes. I, you know, I've worked with a lot of like I said, I'm a nurse, so I work with a lot of therapists and whatnot. And nurses that know all about diabetes, but perhaps they're in some denial about it because they continue to eat the donuts and the muffins and, and the whatnot. So we don't really, we can't change anything until we identify what our problem is and be honest with ourselves and tell ourselves the truth about whatever it is that we need to be truthful. And that really is the hardest part. I mean, people don't change their diets because they're in denial about it. And, and I get that. I mean, I sometimes want, I mean, food, I think food addictions are probably the hardest because we have to eat. And, um, you know, we don't have to drink to survive, but we have to eat. So it, it, it does get complicated when we use food to self-medicate or when we are in denial about, oh, just that little cookie's not gonna hurt me or whatever. But over time, someone with diabetes who continues to escalate their blood sugar, there's a lot of vascular damage that can be done from that. So we, can't, we have to be honest about what am I doing to my body, to my health, to myself and that's not always easy to do. We just can't lie, but how many people wanna be honest, right? It's usually over something that's very, very hard to change such as alcoholism or, yeah. um, you know, sugar, like alcohol turns to sugar and there's a lot of alcoholics that say, my God, they quit drinking and they could not get enough sugar. And I understand that because the alcohol metabolizes to sugar in our body. So people in early sobriety, I always tell them, eat a candy bar, go get some ice cream, put some honey in your orange juice and give your body the sugar that it's craving until you can get a hold of this. And that, you know, just takes time for our bodies to heal from, you know, whether we're trying to detox from sugar or alcohol or whatever the case may be. Yeah. 
Well, I'm, I'm making those necessary changes in my life. And as I said, it's only been four weeks as of this conversation. Uh, and um, uh, when I was initially tested, uh, the, the, the uh, scale read 544, which, you know, uh, then they did the, uh, the blood test and it said, oh yeah, you've been at 275 on average for the last three months. You know, and yet all of my other blood work showed uh, previously that I was in the hundred, low hundreds, you know, one, five, six, ten, maybe 15 or 20. Uh, and I said, well, then this is due to the pandemic. I'm not blaming it on the pandemic, but because of it, we, when my wife was furloughed from her job in late March, we shifted our eating habits. We started buying comfort foods like everybody else was doing, processed foods with lots of carbs and calories and sugar. And so um, over the last, uh, well, since March, I've contributed to that high level. I also know too that in the case of uh, diabetes, uh, type two, I can put that sucker into remission. I was at one point pre so I was on the high level of whatever the number was. Uh, I think uh, A1C was like 6.4 or something. And um, so it is possible that I can get out of the, and, I, and not just possible, I'm going to do that. That's, this is temporary. I can tell you that right now. But unfortunately for someone with an alcohol addiction, that's not so easy, is it? No, it is not. And I know the pandemic, the, the alcohol sales have been up 300%. Some articles say it's even higher than that. And I've talked to a lot of people that were not problem drinkers until this pandemic, and they are now because they were so stressed out trying to deal with, you know, the uncertainty of it all, their jobs and trying to homeschool and all this stuff. And of course, when we use a substance, whether it's, you know, pot or alcohol or prescription drugs or whatever, it always makes things worse. They never make anything better. So, you know, it's a really tough time, but we have to, you know, going back to mindfulness, if you can just pause and take a step back and, you know, ask yourself, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? Why, do, why am I reaching for this drink in the middle of the day? What emotion am I trying to self-medicate? Um, what is really going on? What am I trying to escape? And that's really what most people that drink um, are trying to escape some sort of emotion or feeling when it's, you know, like I said, something that we're reaching for in the middle of the day when we normally wouldn't. It becomes a coping mechanism and then it becomes a habit and then it becomes a problem. So we have to really be mindful of what is going on, what am I feeling, hit the pause button, be honest with yourself. If you realize that you are drinking all day, every day because of the pandemic and you can't stop, you've got a problem. I mean, if you can put the brakes on, put that stuff away and be done with it. And I do think, Richard, we need to redefine what is social drinking. Because people who drink seven days a week or five days a week, three to four drinks each time, love to say they're social drinkers, but that's not really social. That's more like heavy drinking. Mm -hmm. You look on the you know, National Institute of Alcohol and Alcoholism and Abuse, they will tell you that is heavy drinking. So we need to go back. If you want to be a social drinker, what does that really mean? It means you might have a drink a week. It means you might not drink at all unless you're at a wedding or a funeral or a backyard barbecue. And then maybe you don't drink for another two or three weeks. That's mm -hmm. social drinking. It was, I heard it said, and I'm trying to remember if it was in an interview or I heard an interview on radio, uh, television. Well, I think they were talking about the opi opioid epidemic and it may have been one of my guests who said if we have an opioid epidemic then we have an alcohol pandemic in other words it's not just coronavirus it's alcohol that's also a pandemic because of what it does to the individual's body mind and soul but also what it does to the family to the community to businesses 
I mean, my goodness, if you're going in and so what you, you drank last night and you went to bed and you, you know, so forth. If you had enough alcohol, you could still be under the influence when you drive to work at eight o'clock in the morning. And what kind of productivity are you having on the job? So now it's affecting uh, the productivity. It's affecting our economy, which everybody is so worried about. Uh, and I say that not facetiously because I think people have lost focus on what's really important here. And that is that if we do not take care of ourselves and our families and our communities, you can kiss the economy goodbye because there's not going to be anybody around to be a part of the economy. Right. To you know, off. it's just like, like cigarette manufacturers at the alcohol industry. That's what I'm going to call it. The alcohol industry. It's literally killing its customers, but they don't care because the people who are there killing are having more babies who will grow up to be their new consumers. And it's like, that seems to be the vicious cycle. No, you're Am I wrong? Right. No, you're not wrong at all. And it, it is a global pandemic. I know alcohol, um, Europe has the highest alcoholism rate. And, you know, think back, like I said, I'm Italian and people like to say, oh, well, you know, they know how to drink. They teach their kids how to, that's BS. I mean, they have a very high alcoholism rate. You cannot teach someone to drink responsibly because if you are an alcoholic you are and it's genetic and the younger you start drinking the higher your chances of turning into an alcoholic number one number two there are so many disconnects in our society that make zero sense like you were just talking in the business world 239 billion dollars are each year is the number in lost productivity so I, here's what I want to say to like business owners. How does it make any kind of sense on every corporate retreat, the alcohol is flowing. So you're really wanting to like get all these people all jacked up on the booze and then they're completely unproductive and your insurance costs and everything is going to escalate because of all the health things. I know when I worked as an ER nurse, and this is when I really started to pay attention. I was probably in the EED for about five years. And I said, I started, you know, I'm like, my God, most of the stuff rolling through the doors was all alcohol or drug related in some kind of way. I mean, the heart attacks, the traumas, the accidents. I mean, alcohol or drugs was most often lurking in the background. The... Um, liver disease, the esophageal varices that were bursting, the GI bleed. So all of these medical issues were related to alcohol, but it's funny how the doctors or no one really, unless the person was brought in completely drunk, they never really talked about that. And so here again, the alcohol is always taking a back seat when it really should be in the front seat because it does cause all this damage, all this lost productivity makes very little sense of why it is celebrated. I mean, an alcohol-fueled home, you can almost guarantee your children are not gonna thrive in ways that they would if they were brought up in a different environment where they were encouraged to pursue their gifts and encouraged to learn how to cope. But parents cannot teach coping skills if their coping skill is to have a glass of wine, to have a cocktail at everything that happens, every emotion that they find unsettling. You're not advocating prohibition, are you? Absolutely not. I'm advocating that we really get honest with the role that alcohol plays in our lives and what are we role modeling and why don't we care more about, you know, when you have kids going to school, drawing pictures of their mothers holding wine glasses with, you know, little notes like, I wish mommy would drink less of this. I've, I used to work with kids and, you know, these are the kinds of things that they're saying. And especially in affluent 
communities. I mean, nothing ever falls apart, you know, because there's all this money to hold things together. But these children are suffering. And I think we really have to stop and say, why don't we care more about what we're showing our children? I mean, I was always very grateful not to be that wine mom. I mean, that is not who I wanted to be, who I wanted my sons to see. And, you know, I love it that my sons, they're now grown. And like I said, they're doing very well. And they said, mom, you were such a badass. I love that they thought that of me, that they weren't like, oh, you were embarrassing because you were drunk. I never embarrassed them in front of my their friends. I never was flirting with their friends. I mean, they were went to Miami University in Oxford here in Ohio. And when the moms would come down for the parents' weekends, I mean, the stuff these kids were saying about their mothers, it was shameful. They were embarrassed. Their mothers were hanging on, you know, these college men. And, and some of these women were beautiful, but please, you're, you know, half their age. These kids were kind of appalled by it, but they don't say that to the drunk moms. Um, you know, I know at like a bachelor party that my sons went to, they said it was shocking when they went to Nashville, the 40 year old women that were trying to bed, you know, and get in the house with all these young 25 year olds, all drunk and just willing to be used up for a night. And I'm so grateful that I wasn't that person. I mean, maybe I would have been if I kept on drinking. So, there's a lot of things that, you know, it seems like people celebrate that kind of behavior instead of step back and say, wow, is that really the example I want to be for my daughter, for my sons to be the drunk mom? I never wanted that. And I'm very grateful because I could have easily have been that. And of course, all of us could be that in that respect. And, uh, and it's, it's not only reckless, it's dangerous. Uh, and it'll destroy pretty much everything that maybe you had built up to that point uh, when, uh, before the, 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 the whole thing started. And um, it's interesting how some people never drink because of the example that was shown to them by family or friends. And so they never touch a drop for their entire lives, not because they became inebriated and did something stupid, but because they saw the example and there was no way they were going to go down that road. And it wasn't going to be that hard to do because all they had to do was not drink alcohol. Right. I mean, there's a lot, like you said, there are people and then the same, you know, there are people that grew up in alcoholic homes like I did. And you think, oh God, I don't want to go there. And you end up going there because there is such a genetic link. And like I said, with the trauma, I mean, all of my siblings have had issues practically with addiction. Um, and I think it, you know, the environment, the genetics, it was just a perfect storm for us. But you know, nobody ever, nobody ever regrets quitting drinking, but people have deep, deep regrets that they waited so long. Yeah. And that is my other message because, you know, it is heartbreaking for women and men that they've lost the respect of their children. Some children don't even speak to their parents because of the damage that was done by the drinking. And you know, why do we have to let it go that long? I mean, here, here again, if we can just be honest with ourselves and if you find your drinking is escalating or you have one member in your family asking you to stop drinking or saying, why do you have to drink so much? Listen to them. People never beg social drinkers to stop drinking. You know, I mean, nobody cares if somebody goes and gets drunk one night or whatever. But when you are drinking every day and causing all sorts of havoc in your family and then denying that these people who are all miserable around you are miserable, that's a problem. You're in denial. There are some people who also use it uh, to self-medicate, uh, to numb the pain of the feelings uh, of the past and so forth. But I wanted to ask you about 
forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness on the part of the family members who don't want to have anything to do with this, uh, this alcoholic. But I'm going to say even more importantly, forgiveness for self for having gone down that road. Because obviously there have been lessons learned because now you're no longer drinking. And so um, you have made a change and so forth. Talk to us about that aspect of uh, uh, addiction. That It's a huge aspect. I know for me personally, like I said, I didn't have to worry about my kids because I didn't have them yet. Um, I was very early in recovery when I did get, when I got pregnant. So, but I had to forgive myself for literally pissing away the whole decade of my 20s. Completely like that decade never existed. And so I was behind the eight ball trying to catch up in my 30s and 40s with my education, figuring out what do I want to be when I grow up. Um, not horrible to forgive myself for those things, because like I said, having a higher bottom, I didn't do a lot of damage to other people. However, over these past 31 years of working with people in addiction, especially women and men, oh my God, it's heartbreaking. And that is the, I know my mother on her deathbed, she had 30 years sober when she died and she still had so much guilt and did not, she said, are you sure you kids have forgiven me and that you're not? And we had all forgiven her, believe me. I think kids are extremely forgiving unless you do something horrific that may take time or maybe never. But um, with her, you know, the minute she sobered up, we were all just completely grateful and we all did forgive her. But that guilt stays with people. It stays with parents. And the self-forgiveness is very, very hard for people to do. And that's just another reason to raise the bottom that you don't have to let everything just be destroyed. You know, just be honest with yourself. Like I said, if your kids are saying, mom, dad, we don't like it when you drink, you drink too much. Why do you always have to open a bottle of wine? Why do you always have to get beers? You know, I was talking to one gal and she said her, her and her husband like to go to this Mexican restaurant and get margaritas. And when their kids started to say, do you have to order margaritas every time we go there? That was a huge red flag. The kids were uncomfortable because mom and dad's demeanor and everything changes after they had that margarita. So when you start hearing people in your family, even your little child of three-year-old, three years old, say things like that, wake up and look at it. And that's the gift I believe that I was able to do is when people started to say, wow, I think you're drinking too much. Like I said, my mother was sober at the time when she started to say, Lisa, you're drinking too much. Instead of pushing back and ignoring it and staying in denial and getting angry, I decided that, you know what, people don't just tap you on the shoulder one day and say, hey, you drink too much, unless you actually do. So I decided to listen. And it's easier to forgive yourself when you don't have decades of stuff that you have to be sorry for. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for giving us so much time here on the program. Uh, uh, I think that for many of us, uh, we all have to come to grips with in that if it's, Is there, okay, I'm going to throw this one question out to you. Uh, from your perspective, is there such thing as a healthy addiction? Well. Or is addiction you know just in general? <laughs> I don't think there is a healthy addiction because even if it's going to the gym, I mean, I have seen people that they go to the gym at the expense of their family and their other relationships because they're obsessed with themselves and obsessed with looking good. I mean, you can be too obsessive about eating healthy and then you miss a lot of enjoyment in life. So, you know, moderation really is the name of the game. And for those of us yeah. 
if you can't moderate whatever it is, food, alcohol, whatever, you know, take a look at it. And that's, yeah, I don't think there are healthy addictions. Okay. Lisa Boucher, author of Raising the Bottom. I want to thank you for joining us here on the program. It's, it's been a real pleasure and very insightful from your perspective. And, and it's, it's congruent with uh, the many of the other stories that we have had on this program dealing with the issue of addiction, whether it be alcohol, uh, although alcohol is considered a drug too, uh, or any other addiction, that process that we have to go through. Uh, would you say that you have learned valuable lessons through this process that maybe you would not have learned had you not gone through it. I'm not saying that you should have gone through it necessarily, but since you did, can you look at, look back and say, okay, I did this and I learned this, this, and this, and this, and I'm glad now that I'm on the other side. Oh my God. Absolutely. I am rather grateful that I had this experience because I mean, it, it, I can relate to people from every walk of life. I mean, addiction knows no demographics. So I, uh, I feel like it's enriched my life in many ways because I have, I have friends that I would never have met, like I said, from all walks of life and cultures and whatnot, that this is our common bond. And so it has enriched my life in many, many ways. It has made me a better person. Um, I learned a lot about myself. Like I said, I found a spiritual life that I don't think I would have been prodded to seek as arduously had I not experienced what I did. So, you know, and, and that seems to be a very common thing with most addicts and alcoholics that when they do come out on the other side, they're very grateful for the richness that it's added to their character to, you know, and here's what I do love that nothing surprises me. I mean, people can tell me all sorts of outrageous stuff and I'm not surprised or shocked by it because I know human nature, you know, we are all capable of doing dark, dark things and living in the light and we have to make a choice, you know, and drugs and alcohol drags us back to the darkness. And if you want to live in the light, check your vices, you know, and really get honest with yourself because it has given me a new perspective in my life that I simply could not have had had I not gone through um, alcoholism not advocating that people uh, go through that process to learn those lessons. There are other ways of learning those lessons uh, without having to put yourself through that. But by the same token, I think that maybe realizing those aspects uh, of uh, lessons learned, um, which is kind of part of the process. Uh, and that's one of the things too, that I've been trying to eliminate from my vocabulary and help other people to do the same. And that is, to eliminate the uh, uh, words failure and success, that this life is about learning, not about passing or failing. Uh, and that if you've learned through this process, fantastic. There are some people who will go through the process and they'll go into remission. You know, they'll go right back because they just can't quite, they can't quite get over the hill, as it were. Right? You have to change. You have to change. I mean, I yeah. had to change my thinking. I mean, alcoholism is a thinking problem more than it's a drinking problem. And it is a disease of perception. I mean, when you're drinking, we perceive the world very differently. We perceive our relationships and everything around us as often we look at it very differently from the reality of how it really is yeah. and that's why it causes so much problems because you're it's like i said it's a it, alcohol goes straight to the prefrontal cortex which is the computer of our brain and it's like throwing water on your laptop it's gonna short out and malfunction it's not going to work right so yeah. we need to have a clear mind get that perspective 
And I had to get busy working on myself. Why did I feel the way I did? Healing those wounds and changing my perspective. And just taking away the alcohol does a whole lot to clear your brain so that you do get a new perspective. Yeah. Well, I do thank you so much for joining us here on the program. I do have three final questions for you uh, before we wrap up this program that I like to ask. You may have addressed them during the program, but I like to ask them directly. Before I do, I want to uh, let our listeners know that we're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. with Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we give you choices and knowledge of those choices from our various guests uh, so that you can uh, help to make your dreams come true. And we're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times. Podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, we do have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. Any amount is welcome. We'll take energetic healing as well. We will greatly receive that to continue moving forward on this program. We also encourage you to go to our guest website. What is your website these days that people can... Uh, get a copy of the book. They can learn more about you, learn more about the work that you're doing. Raisingthebottom.com. And the book is on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Excellent. Raisingthebottom.com. We will be linked to your website. And of course, don't forget this is 2020, the year of perfect vision. We encourage you to do just that. Uh, go within. You're going to find all the answers you need right there. You will also get support on the outside from people. If you're dealing with an addiction, Get support from people like Lisa Boucher, author of Raising the Bottom. First question for you is, who is Lisa Boucher? Well, who am I? I am a child of God, and I'm just working hard every day to be of service to those who are struggling. That is really what I'm about, because I've seen so many lives change, um, and that is really who I am at my core. I'm also an animal lover. So I like to nurture things. I like to make things grow. I like plants and um, I'm a little bit of an introvert too, I guess. Mm. Yeah. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I want to bring awareness to this pandemic problem of alcohol. I would love to get people to start reframing it, to start pushing back a little bit about why we think all this wine time and all the wine memes and all that is necessary or funny when you really look at it. Like what adult thinks it's funny that you have to get drunk in the middle of the day just because you're calling it day drinking or, you know, wearing clothes. Why is that funny? to numb ourselves, to mask our gifts, to not really do anything productive because we're so busy drinking, recovering from drinking and complaining about our lives when, you know, there's just so many beautiful things in life that I am so busy now. And I know when I decided to quit drinking, nobody told me I never went to rehab, but my first thought was truly, I'll never have any fun. And that seems to be the, the one way that all alcoholics think. So many of us think, oh my God, I'll never have any fun. But when you really think about it, what is so fun about just working and drinking? And now I'm doing all kinds of amazing things. I'm having way more fun sober than I ever did drinking. It's just a much healthier, better way to live. And, you know, I look at the people that are, you know, my age now and their kids are grown and that and a lot of them are having some really serious health issues because all those, all that drinking for decades, you know, when you're 20, 30, 40, but by the time you start hitting your 40s and 50s and onward, the drinking starts to take a physical toll. And I'm just very grateful to have that out of the equation. Yeah. And finally, what is your life's purpose? I think my life's purpose is to be of service to another human being in whatever way that can be. That is why we're here, to be of service. And that really is what I want to do with my life. You know, alcoholism is a very selfish disease. And it, the people become very myopic. It's all about them. 
And so when I got sober, it's all about you now. That, that is what's important in my life. How, what can I do for my family and the people that reach out for help? I want to be there for them. And that is my life's purpose, to give back. I have another question for you as we leave. You mentioned that your husband used to be your drinking buddy and so forth. I'm curious, what is your drink of choice today? Well, I drink a lot of water. Honestly, I did find these fuzzy little at Trader Joe's. I like their lemon ginger seltzer water. And I found these other things are called ices. They're really carbonated. I'm not a pop drinker at all, but I kind of like those. But for the most part, I drink water and iced tea. I go to Whole Foods and they've got a slew of iced teas that are just amazing, all sorts of different kinds of flavors and that. So that's pretty much it. It's kind of boring, but <laughs> it works. Well, at least the two of you can uh, at least uh, clink glasses and share the moments that you have together that's extremely important too and that your relationship with him and your respective community as much of an introvert as you are is uh, certainly much healthier than uh, than it used to be 30 years ago and we again thank you for joining our community and sharing your story with us thank you for having me and i want to thank you for listening to tell me your story new paradigms for a new world we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true and until our next broadcast podcast love to love